You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. So this episode continues our Life of Christ series by the late Brother John Martin. We're now on episode 12 and Brother John deals with Matthew 26 verses 20 through to 30. And he's called this episode, Do This in Remembrance of Me. Do this in remembrance of me, Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 20 through to verse 30. Good evening, my dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if verse 26 of Matthew 26, of course, we have here that it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And it, it seems, brethren and sisters, that when they had sat down to that meal and they're having this Passover, that Jesus himself decided during the course of that meal that a portion of that meal should have special significance. He made that decision. Uh, they were proceeding along the lines, of course, of the, both of the scriptural record and of the traditions, some of the traditions which had, uh, the Jews had brought in, which were not all bad, and they were proceeding along those lines, and Jesus himself, during the course of that feast, decided that at a point somewhere in that feast, he would have a, give a special significance to what was being said. Uh, and tonight, brothers and sisters, as we consider this section, we want to try and make it as practical as we can because here's a section which we can all take away with us and can be very helpful in our memorial meetings because a lot of us are at a loss what we should be thinking about uh, at the time of the embers when they come around. We listen to the brother giving the exhortation who, of course, promotes thought. But when the emblems come, we often think to ourselves, well, well, what should we be thinking and what can we be thinking about these emblems? And when I read this section and I saw that this, this point that the Lord Jesus Christ was to just introduce this at this point, just to give you your own information, when we go away, brothers and sisters anywhere, we may meet others for a, a memorial meeting that we had a meeting uh, last uh, Sunday. Matter of fact, there was about a 12 of us gathered at a little place and we were all together for the memorial meeting. And what we do on those occasions, we just do the daily readings. Do the daily readings together. And then at the appropriate time when the meeting is finished, uh, we summarise them and see how they apply to the Lord Jesus Christ and we break bread and we drink wine in remembrance of his sacrifice. And that's much the same as what happened here. As the Lord was, was just come to that point, he felt this is the time to introduce this vital matter. Now, I believe that this probably was the, uh, the means by which there grew up in the early communities of the believers these two feasts which are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's have a look at that. Because, you see, the memorial supper followed after the general feast which was held among the brothers and sisters in the first century. We have that recorded for us in the 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I believe this is where it came from, when the Lord separated that part of the meal into a memorial supper. And so Paul says in the 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 20, 
He said, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, he's saying, when you're all having this love feast, as it became known, the agape feast, he said, this is not really the Lord's Supper that you're having. Because, you see, the enjoyment of that supper, brothers and sisters, was uppermost in their mind, whereas the Lord's Supper was an integral part of that feast where all sensual pleasure, even though it be eating or whatever it is, is put right out of your mind and now you're concentrating upon this bread and this wine which speaks specifically of him. So Paul says, you're coming together to have this supper. This is not the Lord's Supper. Why? He says, for in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper. One is hungry and another is drunk. And they had turned these feasts, brothers and sisters, into a rather an immoral gathering, really. It, 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 it was a very bad thing what had happened here. And Paul says, you must never imagine that that's the Lord's Supper. Because, brothers and sisters, he never took before anyone. He didn't come into this world to take precedence over, over anyone. He came to lay down his life for everyone. He was the servant of humanity. Well, that certainly wasn't the Lord's Supper. When they were coming together and eating when and where they liked, not waiting for each other, somebody was a bit late, too bad, we'll start without him, and all the best part of the food was gone, perhaps before others came. That's not Jesus Christ, says the Apostle. That is not the way he lived. And he reminded them of that and, and there were people who were actually overeating and, and there were others who went hungry because of the greedy people that were there. He says, you can never, ever, ever say that's the Lord's Supper. He says, why? He says, haven't you got houses to do that in? Can't you to have that sort of a feast at home? He didn't want that, brothers and sisters, to be equated uh, with the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, I'm telling you, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you that the same night in which he was betrayed, the Lord took bread. And certainly, brothers and sisters, the fact that he took the bread in that atmosphere was clearly indicative that there was nothing very pleasurable, according to the flesh, with what the Lord did. It was very serious and very meaningful. And so you can imagine him that as they were eating, when he took that bread, now he'd taken bread before, but now they see in this a new significance. And back, back in Matthew chapter 26, as this very serious part of the feast now came to pass, he takes this bread and says, Matthew, he blessed it. He blessed it. Now, brothers and sisters, in Luke 22 and in 1 Corinthians 11, which I believe if you look very carefully, you'll see that Paul's uh, seems to follow very carefully what Luke had to say. He seems to more specifically uh, use expressions which are Luke's expressions. And, and both the apostle and, and the, uh, the, uh, the, the writer of Luke, they say he gave thanks. So we have the equation, therefore, that the giving thanks and the blessing were really the same thing. Now Jesus gave thanks for that bread. Now we say, why would he give thanks? Well, why would you give thanks for any food? But they had already given thanks. That meal had been already in progress. But now he singles out this piece of bread. Now there was nothing different about that bread, brothers and sisters. There's nothing magic in the bread. And the Catholic doctrine of, of transubstantiation, that it's actually the body of Christ, is a whole lot of nonsense. It's nothing but a piece of bread. But you see, in his mind, he wanted them to see, in their mind, that that bread symbolised something that is far greater 
far greater uh, than they'd ever contemplated. It was a gift of God. That bread came down from heaven, not the peace he's handling, but that which is symbolised, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now you come back to John, or come forward to John chapter 6. Now this is why we give thanks for the bread, brothers and sisters. It's not like giving thanks for your ordinary meal, as God being the provider of all things that provides the season and the rain and the sunshine and, and of course the produce of the earth. It's not like that. It's giving thanks for this bread because it has a special significance and we're thanking him for his son. Now in John chapter 6 and verse 32, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth his life unto the world. So when we give thanks, brothers and sisters, for that bread on Sunday morning, don't think in your mind that this is just like giving thanks that you do for your breakfast or your dinner or your tea at home. It's far greater than that. That's thanking God, as we should, for the material things of life. But here on the table is the gift of his son. His son. And those of you who have got families and children would know what an enormous gift that was. We ought to be very, very thankful when we give thanks for that bread as Jesus would have been when he blessed that bread. He was thanking God for sending him into the world to save sinners and he wanted them to see what a wonderful gift that was, brothers and sisters. Now I want you to notice in this sixth chapter of John, and we'll just spend a little time here about this bread, I just want you to notice the repetition of the word give. Now you notice in verse 32, end of of verse 32, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. The end of verse 33, He giveth life unto the world. You come over the page, brothers and sisters. I'll go back to verse 27, rather. Let's not miss this one. Labour not for the meat which perisheth, but that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. And now over the page, verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven, If any man eat this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, and I will give, which I will give for the life of the world. Now look at the repetition of that word give. Now why is the emphasis here? Well, this will try and help us to appreciate, I believe, brothers and sisters, the symbolism of this bread, among other things. You see, he had just fed 5,000 people, hadn't he? with the two loaves and the five fishes. He just fed people with bread. And that was on the eastern side of the Lake of Galilee. He then had travelled across then to the northwestern side of the lake to Capernaum and as he came to there, uh, the crowd met him back there in the synagogue and the synagogue was packed to capacity because people were there to see him perform more miracles and to have to get free bread. Food was not as easy in those days to get as we find it, brothers and sisters. 
The commodities of life were not as simple uh, gathered as we gather them in packets and in all their pre-wrapped condition. Uh, food was difficult. And to have a man make bread for you was marvellous. And they wanted to get him to go on performing these miracles. Uh, not that they, as Jesus said, not that they were impressed with the miracles, but that they wanted bread. And in order, brothers and sisters, to to provoke him to go on making bread, we read in verse 28 of John chapter 6, they said this to him, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? That's why you got the word give. What are we going to do that we might work the works of God? And they were trying to provoke him into doing what they believed was the work of God, and that's feeding people with material things of life. And that wasn't God's purpose at all. It's God's blessing. His purpose is not to just feed people with bread, brothers and sisters. His purpose is to give them eternal life, that they might eternally manifest him to a world at large. That's his purpose. His purpose isn't to feed people. That's a blessing he gives people. That's not his purpose. But they thought that it was. And therefore they said, what are we going to do that we might work the works of God? And the answer came back, this is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. Believe him. Now that doesn't involve, brothers and sisters, the works of law or the works of flesh. It involves a confidence and a belief that God can do what we cannot work. That's why you got the emphasis upon give. And not only that, brothers and sisters, but you see what the Lord is doing here. This is the bread of eternal life. This is the bread which if a man eats, you'll never die, he said. If a man eat this bread, he shall never die. He shall live forever. Now what he's doing there is contrasting the very first instance when we learn about man and bread. You know what God said to Adam? In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread for out of the ground wast thou taken and dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. So you just think about that So here is a man, a man who worked and perspired in working in anxious, hard work to eat bread to die. You listen to it. In the sweat of your face you will eat bread. For out of the ground you were taken and out of the ground you're going to go. For dust you are and dust you will return. A man worked by the sweat of his brow to eat bread to die. And here's Jesus coming from the Lord, from, from the God of, of heaven saying, I'm going to give, give you bread which you don't have to work, which you eat, you will live forever. Now you think of that contrast. Now the Lord wasn't teaching them, brothers and sisters, that anyone gets eternal life by doing nothing. He wasn't saying that. 
We know that the works of faith are absolutely a prerequisite to the kingdom of God. But he's not talking here to them about their works of faith. He, he was trying to tell them that there's no way known that they're going to be able to provide their own way to, to the kingdom of God. It can't be done. It's got to be God-given. And instead of thinking about what they can do to work the works of God, he says, you believe what God has done. And what should happen then, brothers and sisters, is this. When that is contemplated and thought about, what should happen, there should be a far greater impelling force to get us to do the works of faith than ever could be induced by law. That's what should happen when we appreciate the gift of God and what it is. That's why he blessed that bread. That's why Luke and Paul says he gave thanks for it. Now this chapter of John helps us immensely in thinking about the symbolism of the bread because we, you know, when the Lord broke that bread he'd, he'd already told them all these things they ought to associated all of this in their mind with what he was doing now this bread of course was typical of a manna wasn't it you see um, he says that here doesn't he, he said in verse uh, 49 of this 6th chapter of John he says your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead this is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. So there's not only a contrast with what happened in the Garden of Eden, but there's also a contrast with what happened in the wilderness. Manna. Now that wasn't a name that God called it. That was what Israel called it. And they went out and they, they saw this small thing on the ground like a, a, a little lump of frost a little white thing on the ground in the morning that tasted like wafers with honey and coriander seed and it was very tasty. That is, when the first time you ate it, they got sick of it after a while, but they should never have. And they said, what is it? That's manna. That's the Hebrew word, manna. What is it? And, you know, it was during the course of this speech in verse 42 that they said to him, and they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how is it then that he said, I came down from heaven? And they were virtually saying, who is he? What is he? They hadn't got any idea. Because you see, brothers and sisters, uh, when he referred to the manna, they were thinking about what was on the ground and what God had put on the ground that Israel would pick up. Why don't you put bread on the ground for us to pick up? They, had, they were completely carnally minded. They never ever contemplated what was going on. He said, you haven't even thought about that manna. Now what was it? Well, Psalm 78 says it was the bread of the mighty. The authorised version translates it angel's food. But the Hebrew means bread of the mighty. Uh, this is bread, brothers and sisters, that belongs to mighty people. But those who weren't mighty saw it as absolutely sickening after a while. Just the repetition of it sickened them. But it's the bread of the mighty. Now you think about the manna. And you think about what we can learn about the, the Son of God from the manna. He said, I am that bread of life. Now there were three distinct types of manna, brothers and sisters. Three distinct types of manna. There was manna that corrupted after one day. If they kept, if they, during the course of the week, gathered more than one day's eating, but then it bred worms and stank. And that bread came down from heaven. 
God had produced, brothers and sisters, one in our nature, a corruptible man. God had produced him. The Spirit of God, which came from on high, caused Mary to conceive, and one was produced upon the earth, though he came down from heaven in the sense that the Spirit of God came down to cause him to be born, he was born like that original manner, he was corruptible, brothers and sisters, just like you and I. But here's your first class of manner. And then we find that when it came to the Friday night, uh, previous to keeping uh, the Sabbath, of course, on the seventh day, what did God do? He says, you go out today and he says, you gather manna for two days. And he said, it won't corrupt. And so we find that the process of corruption was suspended to allow for the Sabbath. And because the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, never obeyed any of the instincts of his body, which are common to all of us, never gave them any chance whatever of expression in his life because he'd done no sin, because there was no lust in him, there was no corruption in him when he was put in that grave. Though he might have had a corruptible body, it did not corrupt. Because Peter says corruption is in the world through lust. And this man did not lust like others. And so he was laid in that tomb and God suspended the process of that corruption over the weekend of his death and burial just like he suspended the corruption uh, that was in uh, that, other, that, that type of manner. And then finally we find the manner incorruptible. Uh, when we read in that book of Exodus, chapter 16, verses 33 and 34, brothers and sisters, uh, that they were to lay, take a, a piece of manner, a little piece of manner, and they were to lay that up in a golden pot in the most holy place, and it was there for years. And then God told them that ye may see, see the way that I have fed you. And they couldn't see it. Jesus called it in Revelation 2 and verse 17, the hidden manner. But God said that you might see. There's only one way you can see that. And that's by faith. And there was no amount of works of flesh that could have been done, brothers and sisters, that could have revealed that manner to them. They had to see it with the eye of faith. And that was manner incorruptible. And what does Paul say in Colossians? Our life is hid with God in Christ. It's there. It's hid, brothers and sisters, but we can see it. By the eye of faith, we can see that life. Now, there's your three types of manner that were there in that wilderness. And you look how it happened. It came in our nature, the corruptible nature. However, God did not allow the process of corruption to set in when he died because he'd done no lust and then gave him eternal life and now our life is hid in him. Like that little golden pot with the manna inside of it that never corrupted for years. Now isn't that interesting? So when Jesus made reference, brothers and sisters, to uh, that bread from heaven and likened it to the manna, how instructive was that? If they'd only thought about it, if they'd only stopped thinking about natural bread and started thinking about that manna and the way in which it fed Israel and the three distinct types of manna and listening to his teaching, they would have seen the correlation of those things. But they never did that, did they? Now Matthew says he broke it. Now there's only one reason why he would break that bread, really. And that was because he wanted to share it. 
the bread which we break, says the Apostle. Is it not the communion of the, with the body of Christ? Communion is the word koinonian, to share, to participate. So is it not, brothers and sisters, our sharing together of the body of Christ? And you know, such was the significance of that for breaking it. You can't just... It's no good any one person in, in the hall saying, well, we've got one loaf on the table, which we don't, but if we did have one loaf, it would no good say, well, let someone come forward and, and eat the whole thing on behalf of the, of the meeting. It's, it's not done like that. We, we've all got to share, brothers and sisters. In the church, of course, in, in, in some of the, in the Catholic church and some of the other religions, you've got these fellows in all their regalia, with all their hypocrisy, and they eat it on behalf of the people. It was never intended like that. And Jesus, if that had been the case, brothers and sisters, there wouldn't have been a fitter man ever born than him to eat the whole bread on behalf of everybody. But he didn't do that. He broke that bread and gave it to them. This was something he was going to share with them and something which they, brothers and sisters, had to be personally involved with him. And that's why of a Sunday morning, when we see the brother on the platform here, we think, oh well, we'll get a good or he won't get a good exhortation. That's how we think, isn't it? But let's all think of this. That whatever that brother does, and they all do their best, and whatever we might think of, of what he said, or whether he said it well or whether he didn't say it well, brothers, I'm telling you, that when he sits down, the responsibility for the successful conclusion of that meeting does not depend only on him, but on every single one of you sitting out there. It's in your hands. It's different than every other meeting, really. Oh yes, you've got to take away from the study class and process for yourself the word. But Sunday morning particularly, when you've got that emblem in your hands, if you eat and drink unworthily, woe betide to that, that brother or sister. The, the brother's done his best. Now it's up to you and me in that audience to do the things we've got to do. That's why Jesus, when he gave them that bread, he wasn't going to eat that on their behalf, brothers and sisters. They were going to share that with him. And, and this was a very important thing. So we find, for example, the expression that when some people uh, spoke of the memorial meeting, as we have it in the Acts of the Apostles, it says they broke bread from house to house. And we often refer to the memorial meeting as we had a breaking of bread. And that is a valid expression that, that has validity. It means something. What we're saying, in effect, is that there was a gathering of, of Christadelphians around a table and we actually shared the life of Jesus Christ. We shared that together. And it's a wonderful thing. So the, the, the writer Luke in Acts says they broke bread from house to house. And you could go on, and from house to house to house to house. So they went around having these meaningful feasts where they shared together uh, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very meaningful. And as I say, the responsibility for the conclusion of a meeting of that nature devolves upon every single brother and sister in Christ. So at the end of that meeting, 
it's no good you or I going out there in the foyer or whatever and complaining about the exhortation if they emblems, brothers and sisters, we have eaten with, a, with an empty mind and an empty heart and, and, and with a meaningless fashion. It's useless criticising what the brother said. It's up to us, whatever is said, to take those emblems and to share that together and that's an individual responsibility. That's why that bread was broken. Paul said, is it not the participation, is it not the sharing of the body of Christ? Now Matthew says he said, he told him what it was, he said, this is my body. And you'd be amazed. When, when you look at some of the, 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 the um, writings on this, unbelievable that, that people see a difficulty in that. Not, not Christadelphian writings, but I looked up some of the commentaries. It's just unbelievable the nonsense that's written about that. The utter nonsense. Oh, the great mysteries about this. Nothing mysterious about it at all. It's just simply a symbol of a man's life, of his energies of what he did in the service of God. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing, nothing at all mysterious about that. He, di- he didn't mean that it's his actual body, as some of the mumbo-jumbo of the priests who pray over this, and they say it actually turned into his flesh, which is blasphemy. And matter of fact, if it did, which it could never, and, and if you eat it, Jesus said the flesh profits nothing, and he was talking about his own flesh when he said that. It doesn't profit anyone anything. Even if it was his flesh, literally, which it isn't didn't profit anybody. It's ridiculous. If, you, if you're worried about all the things that are said about that, forget it, brothers and sisters. It's just simply a symbol of a man's energetic life in the service of God. That's what you're participating in. That you might be energised similarly, spiritually, to serve your heavenly Father. Now, what did they do to make covenants under, under the Old Testament times? In, in Jeremiah 34, now Jesus said, this is my body. Well, what did they do with bodies? This is how they made covenants. Now, we know this happened also in Genesis 15. But in Jeremiah 34, we have a little bit more explanation of that. And in the 34th, Jeremiah, verse 18, he says, And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in twain and pass between the parts thereof, the princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests and all the people of the land which pass between the parts of the calf. See the procession that went through the parts? Just just picture them in your mind as they walk between the two segments of, of of the calf. Princes of Judah, princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf. That was a solemn occasion, wasn't it? So the the bullock, as as the word indicates, big animal, is cut in two, separated a clear path between that body. They all went through, brothers and sisters, and they did that before God. They did that before God. And they did it to make a, to agree to the covenant that God was making with them. As Abraham, when he made his sacrifices and he, he was to divide those animals up and he kept the birds away until a horror of great darkness came upon him and in the horror of great darkness the vision of the burning lamp passing between those pieces. 
Now the case of that Genesis 15, that burning lamp, was certainly a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ in whom both Abraham and God met. So you see, brothers and sisters, the body is broken. We've all got a little segment of it in our hands and we're all walking between that sacrifice. Now, if the body is divided and we're passing through, we're making a covenant with God. Well, he's been through there too, hasn't he? And you see the point, don't you? That what do we read? It says, doesn't it? That, you know, and the word was made flesh. A body, Hebrews 10, says the psalmist, quoted by the Paul to the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ, a body has you prepared me. So God prepared this body. It was a human body, just like ours. But it was no, no ordinary person. He was an extraordinary person, born of the Virgin. But nonetheless, we're in that body. We're all in there because he's got our nature. And we, we're standing before God, as it were, walking through him, brothers and sisters, because he's us. He's the son of man. He's our representative. But he's the word made flesh. And we pass together, don't we? And we make a solemn covenant in doing that. But what Yahweh has said, we agree with it. And we will bow to it. We will do our best to obey it. That's what we say. We don't always do that, do we? None of us. But that's what we ought to be saying, brothers and sisters. When he said, this is my body, God and man met him there. As Paul says, for as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise partook of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Paul says, Paul, in him we have a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Ah oh, yes, merciful brothers and sisters because he took our nature. But faithful in things pertaining to God. Therefore, mercy is not indifferent to God's demands, are they? And in that same body which represented us, the very life that was lived there was God's life. It was the life that God would want that man to live. It was the expression of God's way of life. And we met there, didn't we? Now, that's what he's saying. We broke that bread. This is my body. And they got that in their hands. And they are, as it were, walking between those pieces, aren't they? Now, Luke adds this. Chapter 22 and verse 19. Uh, we need all the Gospel writers, brothers and sisters, to get a complete picture of the, of the meaningful things that are said here. Now this is rather wonderful, what we're going to read here. It's got a very, very special significance. We need to follow this very carefully. Luke said this in chapter 22 and verse 19. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Now the Greek, as some of the translators have it, brothers and sisters, reads that last sentence as, This do as a memorial of me. 
Now, I invite your close attention to this because this is absolutely... Look, this can be a tremendous help on Sunday morning for your thinking. It has been to mine when I found this out. This do as a memorial of me. Now, that's taken from Leviticus 24. Now, this is always a help when you've got a reference from where it's taken. It's always helpful. Now, we're going to read about the showbread. From Leviticus 24, we're going to read from verse 5 to 8. Now, brothers and sisters, when we talk about the showbread, it is quite common that the brethren, when they speak about the showbread, they, they, they quote from the original Hebrew and they like to call it the bread of the faces, which is Hebraically correct, but as far as the, our vernacular is concerned, it doesn't really convey the real meaning. Showbread is exactly right. It's exactly right because, you see, bread of the faces simply meant that there it was on a little table in the holy place and on that veil, it was embroidered into that veil with the faces of the cherubim with all their eyes watching that bread and it was on show. That's exactly the meaning. So bread of the faces may be a, a correct expression of the Hebrew word but the idiom suggests that looking at that bread. So show bread is excellent. It's bread on show. Now you look what happened. Verse 5, And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two tenths deals shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon a pure table before Yahweh. And I'm going to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that here is perhaps a description of the memorial supper. <coughs> that there was perhaps six down either side of the table and the Lord in the middle, either in the middle on one side or whatever, but six either side of him. And that table was pure, not because of those disciples, but because he was there. And then it says this in verse 7, And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be for a bread for a memorial. There it is. Do this as a memorial of me. Now there's the reference. That it may be a bread of memorial, even an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. Now here's the important verse. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before Yahweh continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. Being taken are in italics. But brothers and sisters, you can leave them there because the word from is not in italics and it means being taken and those words are well put there. Now the point being made here is this, that every Sabbath, those bread, that bread was changed because it was going, oh, it's going stale, wasn't it? And it had to be changed. So the priests changed that every Sabbath, but they went back and they put that on the table before Yahweh and it was there as a memorial. And it was on show. And the eyes of Yahweh were on that seven days of the week, year in and year out. And it was taken from the children of Israel. Now, brothers and sisters, spiritually, that is not possible. That is not possible. Because Habakkuk records these words. He says that Yahweh, he said, you are of too pure eyes than to behold evil. 
And when the children of Israel kicked over the traces and disobeyed God, like we all do, God says he hid his face from the house of Jacob. How on earth could the eyes of the Almighty, they were symbolised there, but how on earth, brothers and sisters, could those pure eyes look upon that in a holy place for seven days of the week and gaze upon them and they'd be on show? Couldn't happen. That's why Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. And you see what's happening. Had he not come, brothers and sisters, to be the antitype of that memorial bread, and had he not ascended to the Father to sit at his Father's right hand in everlasting joy, to be the absolute delight of his Father's eyes, none of us would ever be seen by God. He'd turn his back on us. We would never have any access to him. Now I want to show you Luke 24. Look out, look what this happens here. Just think about this. Now just think of the deliberate way this is written. The two disciples on the way to Emmaus. And we know the story. Verse 28 and it says, And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, and took bread and blessed it, and broke it and gave to them, their eyes were open. When were their eyes open? When he broke that bread. Then they saw who he was. Now, Luke's told us that, but I want, you to show, I want to show you, brothers and sisters, how that becomes important in this, in this record. I want you to notice how Luke records that later on. And they went back to Jerusalem, it says in verse 32, and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told them what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in the breaking of bread. Now that's the second time, isn't it? When you told that. It happened, now it's repeated. And when did we see him? It was when he broke that bread. Look at the next verse. And as they thus spake, Jesus stood in the midst of them. That's the third time. So imagine that they're running back and they're saying, we didn't know who it was, we had no idea. It's a wonderful exposition of the word. We were breathless. Our hearts burned within us. And he broke the bread and it was Jesus. As soon as he broke, and there he was. As soon as they said that, he was in that room. Now you see that's three times Luke's told us that breaking that bread brings Jesus into our presence. You see the point, brothers and sisters? See the point? Now so we gather Sunday morning by Sunday morning. We want to be seen of God, don't we? But we all know that during the week, Sometimes we have better weeks and sometimes we have not so good weeks. But whether they're better or whether they're not better, none of them are perfect. And we all know that we wouldn't want God to see us. Oh, he sees us, of course. God's not blind. But he hasn't looked upon us with favour either when we've done the things that we've done. But when we see that chairman stand up with that bread, and he blesses it and gives thanks for the bread, brothers and sisters, and it's broken amongst us, we know that the Lord is here. And we are thankful that it hasn't got to be taken 
from the infield ecclesia. It's given by him. Now, isn't that interesting? Do this as a memorial for me. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, they had to put a little incense on top of there, frankincense upon top of there. Now, that was supposed to be taken from the children of Israel with the prayers on top of it. That's what incense is, a symbol of prayer. And that was to stay before that veil so that the eyes of God could watch that every day of the week. It's all done in symbolism. In reality, it could never happen until the Lord came. But he did come. And because he came, brothers and sisters, and because the Gentiles accepted the message that the Jews rejected, the Gentiles were able to do what the Jew could not do. And I'm going to read you a verse that you've read a thousand times, but this, you look at it in this context. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11. Just have a look at this. This is, this is straight out of Leviticus 24. Malachi is full of this, by the way. His, his, uh, his um, citing of the law is incredible in this book and the exposition of it in, this, in Malachi is quite incredible. But look at this. Malachi 1 and verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure minka, meal offering. For my name shall be great among the Gentiles, saith Yahweh of armies. And so, brothers and sisters, that which was called for, being taken from the children of Israel, could never happen in reality because God turned his back on the, on the house of Jacob and hid his face. But Jesus Christ has come. The Gentiles all over the world have accepted him. From the time of the apostles, it went like a fire through the Roman Empire. And the Gentiles swarmed into the truth and they accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their representative before God. They were baptised into him and from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. That's a symbolism of two things. That is, all time, morning till evening and from horizon to horizon. Through all time, to every nation, they'll bring forth the bread and put the incense upon top of it. For my name shall be great among the Gentiles, saith Yahweh of armies, because it hasn't been taken from the Gentiles, it has been given to them by Jesus Christ. And because God sees him with great joy and pleasure, and we're in him, brothers and sisters, we can come here unashamed despite our failings, because he is more than sufficient for our weaknesses and can instill strength in us and God can look down with pleasure upon his people because he's there. So when that bread is broken, you know that the Lord is in this meeting. Now, of course, that all depends on our attitude of the truth. We know that. But if our attitude is correct, if we're doing the right thing, we know he's here. And in that 24th chapter of Luke, three times, Luke's at pains to tell us he was made known in the breaking of bread. Now, all of that was implicit when the Lord said, do this as a memorial of me. And that's Leviticus 24, verse 7. It's just so absolutely wonderful what's just in a word in Luke's writings, brothers and sisters. Now, Matthew went on to say... He took the cup. Now we've spoken quite a bit about the wine so it's not my intention tonight to, to go into the, any more detail much about that. Save to say this, that in Luke chapter 22 the cup really was an addition to the feast. It, 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 didn't, it didn't form any part of the, of the original feast they sat down nor to this special part. Jesus left it till last. 
And so Luke records that for us in verse 20 of chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 20. Likewise also the cup after supper. And as I said in the 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 25, Paul actually repeats those words. And the cup after supper, after he had supped. So we learn from both Luke and Paul that the special cup of wine, I believe the third of the four cups of wine which they would have drunk, wasn't taken, brothers and sisters, until it was all over. Why did he do that? And you wonder, you think, well, you know, it could have been incorporated in, in that little special part of the feast. So here's the feast they're having here. He, at this point he, he changes the character of the meal and gives this little segment a special significance. Well, why didn't he put the wine in that? No, he come to the end of that and then after that's all over, we have the wine here. And, and you know, there's a simple answer to that, isn't there? I believe there is. Because you see, both bread and wine were a symbol of his life. Jesus said, my meat and drink is to do the will of my Father. Human beings are made up, brothers and sisters, and, and kept alive not only by eating, and they've got to drink as well. If you drink and don't eat, you starve. If you eat and don't drink, you die of thirst. You have to have both nutrients. You've got to have the solids and you've got to have the liquids. That's humankind. But you see, the bread here symbolised the Lord's life, energetic, sent from heaven in our nature to live out the principles of truth and righteousness, wasn't it? But you see, when it comes to the shedding of that blood, it was all over. And he was on the cross now. There was nothing more that he could do on the ground, was there? I mean, he'd done everything that God had asked him to do. There was one more thing he had to do, and that's give his all. It was all over. It was like saying on that cross, after supper, and there it came. And they pierced his side and out came the symbol of his life. And Isaiah said he poured out his life unto death. He poured it out. And so the blood became a symbol not only just of a life that he lived, brothers and sisters, but a life that he filled, he lived to the very full, to the very end when it got poured out in totality on that cross. And it's all over. It's like saying, after supper. And I think it's just wonderful the, the, the way that is put. Now, when he took that cup, Matthew says, a drink ye all of it. And I, I've been in ecclesias, you know, where they're arguing about whether it's right to have little separate glasses, whether we all should drink out of one big jug because Jesus said that. You know, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry, but I don't want to be disrespectful to any brother and sister, but there's a very small mind that thinks like that because that's not what he meant at all. As a matter of fact, the better translation put it like this, drink of it, all of you. It wasn't as if he was saying, you're going to drink out of one jug. He never said that. It, wasn't, it doesn't matter, brothers and sisters, whether we drink out of one jug or whether we have custom. We respect anybody's custom. We're not here to criticise people's custom. What we are here to criticise is the small-minded people who make issues about that. Because the, the essence of it all is, drink of it, every one of you. And how you do it doesn't really matter, does it? But it really matters to drink of it. That's what matters, brothers and sisters. The cup which we drink, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ, says the Apostle? That's the important thing, brothers and sisters. And you see, if bread is this, in this loaf as a solid 
substance. And we break that. It's been grounded to powder from many grains. It's made that bread. And, and the very pieces of it telling you we're all sharing that man's life. Well, we have, we've got a cup. You can't break the liquid, can you? But you pour it out and you look at that red liquid and you know that it's the blood of the grape. But which grape you haven't got a clue. We could have a bunch of grapes. There may be, I don't know, say a couple of hundred of grapes, maybe what, whatever it is, in a bunch. Squash them together and out comes the red liquid. We put it in a, in, a, in a jar or a glass or something and that's the blood of those grapes. But which of those individual grapes is in there? We wouldn't have a clue. It's all intermingled, isn't it? So Jesus said in Luke, share this among yourselves. Divide this among yourselves. And the word means to share. And that's what we're doing. We couldn't do anything else. Because if we are represented as the, as, the, as the grapes, the fruit of the vine, and we're all there in that bunch, but now it's all crushed together. Our lives are coming to mingle because it's his life. We're not sharing our own, we're sharing his. And as we share it, how do you share the life of Christ? Simple, isn't it? You look at his life, you think, he did this. To a, a, somebody in need, that particular person was in need, and this is what the Lord did. So I see a person in a similar type of need. May not be exactly the same uh, circumstance, but a similar type of need. What am I going to do? I'm going to do what he did. I'm going to do it for that reason. Not because I've been told it, because he did it. And because I love him and I want to be like him. I don't want to be in God's kingdom. And I want to be like that man. And, and when he comes, I want to be like him because I want to see him as he is. I want to be like him. So I'll go and do what he did. What am I doing? I'm sharing his life. And I'm sharing with the person I'm helping. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to do what Jesus did, aren't they? They're, they're going to show their gratitude to somebody else in the same way. And so the life goes around and around and around and it's shared everywhere. And what a wonderful meeting. What an absolutely wonderful meeting we'd have, brothers and sisters, if everybody was 100% keen to share the life of Christ between ourselves. Ha! What sort of an ecclesia would we have? It would be an incredible meeting to do that. It's absolutely been an incredible meeting to see that aspect of the truth put into practice. Well, when you drink that wine, think about it. No good looking in there and thinking, well, that probably down there in the middle somewhere is a little bit that came out of my grape. I wouldn't know. It's not ours anyway, it's his blood. And we share that among ourselves. It's just, it's just so beautiful to think of it like that. Now, that third cup, brothers and sisters, was what was known as the cup of blessing. That's what Paul called it. He called that the cup of blessing. And that was what the Jews had called it. They, they had these four cups of wine, so our tradition tells us, and as I suggested to you, not all the Jewish traditions were bad. And some of them were quite intelligent. And obviously, in this feast, as in a couple of other occasions, the Lord was not averse to keeping some of those traditions that were based upon a sound understanding and appreciation of some of the aspects of the law. They weren't all bad. And this cup of blessing is what it was called by the Jews. And the Apostle calls it that in 1 Corinthians 11. And you know, brothers and sisters, that it was a cup of blessing that was referred back to Psalm 116. Now, this is really interesting because, you know, the Hallel a word which means praise, hallelujah, the hallel was what they called the hymns they sung during the Passover feast. And those hymns were from, from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. 
And Psalm 116 refers to the cup of blessing. Verse 12. What shall I render unto Yahweh for all his benefits towards me? I will take the cup of salvation. That's what it's called there. The cup of blessing. And I will call upon the name of Yahweh. Who's saying this, brothers and sisters? Who's the speaker? Well, in verse 16. O Yahweh, truly I am thy servant, I am thy servant, and the son of thine handmaiden. And Gabriel called Mary the handmaiden of the Lord. And here's the son of the handmaiden, and it says, Thou hast loosed my bonds. And Peter quoted that in Acts chapter 2, when he applied those words to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that the, death, the grave could not hold him. And he quotes the words, he was loose the bonds. Both, of course, from here and, and another psalm, those words come from. So here's the son of the handmaiden. Here's the one that God is going to loose his bonds, brothers and sisters. And he's going to take the cup of salvation. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice the atmosphere in which that was taken. Now this, this is interesting. Look here. In verse 10. I believe, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Now, the word haste, we understand from the Hebraists, means alarm. And there arises in the breast and the mind of this son of the handmaiden, alarm! Alarm! All men are liars! And you can imagine in the same night in which he was betrayed and knowing the betrayer was there and knowing as he told them later on, all you shall forsake me this night. Son of God though he were, brothers and sisters, he was tempted in all points like as we are. An alarm came in him. All men are liars. And if he'd given in, brothers and sisters, to that spontaneous reaction, he could have turned his back on mankind. But he said, what shall I render unto Yahweh for all the benefits towards me? I will take the cup of salvation. Isn't that marvellous? The steadier, you see, in all circumstances of life, the steadier. What shall I render to Yahweh for all his benefits to me? Well, I will take the cup of salvation in the same night in which he was betrayed. Now that comes out of that psalm. Now here we have, a, as it were, a word picture of the drama around that table. Do you know, it's interesting, brothers and sisters, do you know those words, Yahweh for all his benefits towards me, that exact phrase is used of Hezekiah when he went and showed all the gold and silver and jewels to, the, to the, the emissaries from Babylon and it says he did not obey Yahweh for all the benefits towards him from God. He'd forgotten those benefits. He'd forgotten that all that gold and silver hoarded up there in the temple treasury had been given to him by God and he displayed that to the world. And that expression is used, exact expression, 2 Chronicles 32.25, if you're taking notes, in the 2 Chronicles 32.25, that expression is used of a man who forgot the benefits of Yahweh. Yet here's another man, in a different circumstance, that there's an alarming circumstance before him, 
about the vanity and faithlessness of men. But what's he going to do for all the benefits of Yahweh towards him? He reaches out, brothers and sisters, and despite the weakness of humankind, takes that cup of salvation. And the son of the handmaiden is delivered. We'll come back to these psalms when we get to the end of the supper when they went out and they sung an hymn. But for the moment, we don't have to turn up Matthew. I'm just quoting you the expressions that are used. Jesus went on to say, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. New covenant. Well, of course, that's Jeremiah 31, isn't it, brothers and sisters? You see, here's the new covenant. These are the sort of chapters we should never forget. There are certain key chapters in the Bible, and this is one of them. Whenever you're thinking about the new covenant, you think about Jeremiah 31, 31. So it's an easy one to remember. And so here we read in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant. Now there it is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. You know, have you ever thought about that? You know how easy it is, brothers and sisters, to read that Bible and sort of see it in a sort of a mechanical way and not see what that is saying. You say, oh, you know, it's not like the law. You know, the law was written on stone, but the new covenant, you know, God's going to write it in people's hearts. That's right. But you answer me this question. What was different about their hearts and our hearts? They were human beings and we're human beings. Why couldn't he get it written on that heart and he could get it written on this heart? Now he did write on the heart of David, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Moses, Joshua. All of those men had that written on their heart. Wasn't as anything new. They'd been impressed, hadn't they? But the vast majority were not impressed and Israel by and large rejected him with a few exceptions, didn't they? And yet when that message went to the Gentiles, there was an enormous response in such a short time. So that Isaiah re- refers to it as like reeds by the watercourse. They shut up overnight. What was the difference? How did he get it in those hearts and could it get it in some of the hearts here? What, what was the difference? Well, here's the difference. You see, he brought them out of Egypt, brothers and sisters, and he killed your neighbours eldest son to get you out of trouble and you were in big trouble and according to what Ezekiel said you were still an idolater and you refused to obey him and he still went ahead and did it it's not because you responded to him Israel it says clung to the idols of Egypt and yet they woke up at midnight to the howls and wails and shrieks of people in deep grief that their boy was dead because of them wouldn't you have thought that they would have thought of themselves absolutely ashamed and thought, look what's happened for my sake. 
wouldn't you would have thought they would have got through the exterior but it didn't they turned in their hearts back into Egypt look brothers and sisters he, bread fell out of the sky he blew quails in their path their shoes never wore it the clothes never wore it on their feet the cloud by day and the fire by night conquered the seven nations of Canaan gave them judges by the space of 450 years until Saul and then David a man after God's own heart and all the prophets didn't get it in their hearts what was the difference the difference was this side, brothers and sisters, that it wasn't Pharaoh's son, was it? It was God's own child. Now, we can study the Bible and say God is one, Jesus Christ is one, he's not God the Son, he's the Son of God, and we get all our doctrines right. But you've got to see, as a father and a son, brothers and sisters, you've got to see there's a family affair here and you've got to see what an enormous sacrifice that was. And if that doesn't, get the new covenant in their hearts there is nothing more can be done. So that when Peter preached that on the day of Pentecost this same Jesus whom you have crucified hath God made both Lord and Christ and proved him to be the Son of God. What does the record say? They were pricked in their hearts. And one of the most genuine and sincere questions of all history was asked, what are we going to do? And they meant it. They pricked in their hearts, weren't they? And that was the difference, brothers and sisters. As I say, there were men in the Old Testament who saw that, who saw it coming and were similarly touched. They were not all hard, but in the main they were. But now the ignorance which God winked at, brothers and sisters, he commands all men to repent. Because look at the difference. So when Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant, if you were actually standing at the foot of the cross and you might have been there with John and with Peter and with Mary herself when they were drawn to the foot of that cross and you might have saw that blood oozing out of him and running down his side and the haggard face, the desperate cry. You might have saw him expire, brothers and sisters, and you loved him for what he was, but no one at that stage had really understood who he really was. Or they'd said he was the son of God. But they hadn't really got a meaning of that. But you imagine standing along the side of the centurion and he's standing there in absolute awe. And you hear him whisper, this man was the son of God. And you shudder to think that's God's son. Think what God is doing. And if you come to a realisation, as they did later, that what had happened, then if that doesn't get the covenant into our hearts, brothers and sisters, nothing more can be done. Now it's a new covenant. You know, look what happened at the first covenant. Exodus 24. Look at the type of the old covenant. Moses alone shall come near as the Lord Jesus Christ alone was to go to the Father. Verse 4. Moses built an altar and around the altar he put twelve pillars and Paul in Galatians chapter 2 called the apostles pillars. And in Hebrews 13 we read that Jesus is our altar and he sent young men firstborns and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings the only two sacrifices with which they had bread and wine. Think of that. They're the only two under the law with which they had bread and wine. And he took the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant. And he took the blood of the covenant. And when that had been done, when the feast was over, he took 70 of the elders of Israel, 70 being the number of the nations. And they saw the God of Israel and yet before God. 
And the symbolic number of people symbolizing the Gentiles came into fellowship with God. They did eat and drink and then he went into the mountain and said, and we will come again to you. And when Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant, all those echoes were there. Look what happened to the old covenant. Look at the, tip, the topology of that. Just look at it. And as Paul said, when Moses has spoken it, we precept to all the people. In Hebrews chapter 9, he deals with that and shows that this was highly typical of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it says, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Many! Isaiah 53, brothers and sisters, isn't it? Isaiah 53, without a doubt. The blood of many. Isaiah 53 in the last verse. Therefore, it says, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sin of many, which is shed for many and made intercession for the transgressors. So he's going to divide him a portion with the great and he's going to divide the spoil with the strong just the same way as he said, divide this among yourselves. Brothers and sisters, if we as a group of people can learn to love each other to such an extent that we act and talk with one another in trying to share the life of Christ and we divide his life among us, there's nothing surer that when he comes he will divide the world with us. That's the principle set forth here. If we, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. He will divide the spoil with the strong, providing we divide among ourselves that which is offered unto us. Now John says, or Matthew says, if you'd like to have a look at this, and we'll finish here tonight, because this will be a nice place to stop here, brothers and sisters, because it's a, it's a springboard to the next section, isn't it? Because verse 30 says this, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Uh, now, actually the word hymn is actually taken from that Greek word, from where it comes from. It, it really, it's a word, humneo, H-U-M-N-E-O, humneo, hymn. And that means really what the Hebrew word hallel means. It's the Greek equivalent to hallel. It means to celebrate. It's almost exact equivalent to that Hebrew word. So that's where the word hymn comes from, from the Greek word humnio, which means the same as hallel, to praise or, or to, to, to give vent to one's feelings in, in acclamation. Now, Matthew says that, brothers and sisters, that they went, they, after they'd sung a hymn, they went out in the Mount of Olives. Now, if we just stopped with Matthew, we'd think that was it. But look, if you look at John chapter 14, all right, this is why next time we're going to have to go back to John, at the end of John 14, we read this, the last verse. For Jesus said to his disciples, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. So you see, they stood up after that statement, which means that actually before they'd sung that hymn and before they'd left that room, we're going to go back next time, we're going to have to have the look, we're going to have to start at John chapter 13 and work right the way through that to the end of John 14, which must have happened in that interval by the time he finished the feast and they sang that hymn and they arose and went hence to the, to the valley of the Kidron. So next time, brothers and sisters, God willing, we'd have to come back and go back to the 13th chapter of John.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.